I'm Joshua Rosenberg, and this is the first podcast I've uploaded to my new blog, which I'm calling A Lawyer Writes. What you're about to hear is a discussion I recorded with Stephanie Haywood, a barrister specialising in criminal law. We spoke mainly about my new book, Enemies of the People. I've read it. It's excellent, obviously, as you'd expect. It's very insightful. It's very witty as well, actually. I really enjoy some of this. You pepper it with a lot of humour. Um, but let's just start, first of all. I mean, it came out during lockdown, didn't it, in April? Is that right? It did. And, of course, my publishers, Bristol University Press, had the dilemma that a lot of publishers faced, which is uh, whether to go ahead and launch it virtually, which is what they did, or to put it off until the next fixed publication date, Books tend to be published in the spring and the autumn and an awful lot of books are coming out next week on the first week of September, 3rd of September, whatever it is. So I'm rather pleased that mine was out now. There are one or two others, one I might even name, uh, not a million miles away from the subject I've written about, uh, which was ready to come out in the spring and has been put off until the autumn. That, of course, is the new book by Secret Barrister, which I've read and is very good indeed. Excellent. Yeah, and it does, um, I would imagine, touch on some of the topics that you raise in your, your book as well. So um, I read, I think, a little excerpt on, on, on The Guardian over the weekend as well, and it does resonate with some of the topics that you talk about, Joshua. So um, first of all, for those who haven't read it, it's called Enemies of the People. It's, it's a headline. Tell us where that came from and give it, can you, do you want to give a little bit of context? Uh, well, the context of the book is that Bristol University Press said, what about a book? Uh, we're launching a new... Uh, imprint dealing with the social aspects of law and we'd like you to write and what would you like to write about and I said well the subject to write about is the way in which judges make law and the extent to which judges should make law and that's really what the book is about. Enemies of the People was of course the famous Daily Mail headline uh, uh, talking about three senior judges in the Court of Appeal uh, towards the end of 2016 when they ruled quite simply uh, that the Prime Minister Theresa May couldn't authorise the UK's departure uh, from the EU on her own initiative using her prerogative powers, her inherent powers. She needed an Act of Parliament. Now, this was uh, seen by some newspapers as blocking Brexit. It wasn't blocking Brexit, of course, as we know all too well, but it shouldn't have been seen as blocking Brexit because, of course, uh, it was perfectly possible for uh, the then government to get uh, an Act of Parliament. Indeed, it did without any difficulty, and, of course, it all went through. So what the courts were saying was, this isn't a matter for the government, this isn't a matter for the executive, this is a matter for Parliament, and if Parliament wants to do it, well, so be it. Absolutely, but uh, I, I think, uh, as you sort of allude to in the book, that the press sort of misunderstood that a little, or some sections of the press. I they did, say, they did. I mean, if the court had actually spelled this out, if they had actually explained, look, we are uh, making it clear that power resides with Parliament, Parliament is sovereign and Parliament can decide, we're not saying there can't be Brexit if Parliament wants it to be done. But we're simply saying, if Parliament wants it, it should say so in the way that Parliament does, which is to pass legislation. So that's all it was doing, but it didn't explain that. It didn't explain that. And the reasons for that, well, I mean, first of all, courts don't often say what happens next. Secondly, they were cautious. They thought maybe they're trespassing on, on these matters. It's very sensitive and the least said the better. But the reality was, by not explaining what it was that they were doing, 
they enabled newspapers to attack, attack them as being Remainers, as being anti-Brexit. Now, it's possible that even if the court had spelled this out, the newspapers would have still taken this approach. But nevertheless, it would have been more difficult, I think, because of the fact uh, that uh, if they'd explained what I've just explained to you, it would have been harder for the, uh, the newspapers to write headlines like that, and the Daily Mail certainly wasn't the only one. I mean, as a journalist and a lawyer, you straddle both camps, if I can put it like that. So did you, in writing this book, feel a degree of, I mean, were your motivations a sort of uh, desire to explain to the public and to, to, you know, clarify that judges are not enemies of the people, that actually this comes down to some really quite complex issues of constitutional law and separation of powers and all those things that us, you know, as lawyers, we kind of understand, but the public wouldn't necessarily want to engage with, I suppose. That's right. I, I do see that as my job. That's what I've done as a journalist, writing about law for 35 years. Uh, yes. But um, that's also uh, what any journalist does. Any journalist explains how things happen. And, I mean, it's extraordinary, really. I, I just want to read you a little extract uh, from the, the very uh, the preface um, of the book. It says, When John Roberts was nominated by President George W. Bush as Chief Justice of the United States in 20, 2005, he was determined not to repeat mistakes made nearly 30 years earlier by Robert Bork. Um, and uh, Robert's masterstroke came in the way he persuaded senators, these were the senators who had to decide whether to approve his appointment to the US Supreme Court, he persuaded senators to believe he wasn't the conservative ideologue that Bork had been. And what Robert said was this, judges are like umpires. Umpires don't make the rules, they apply them. And that's nonsense, I'm afraid, as, 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 Rob, as Roberts knew perfectly well. Um, judges do make law. Uh, that's the whole way in which the common law advances. By deciding individual cases, they lay down principles which apply in future cases. That's how the law developed. Now, the book is about how far they should go, whether they're too activist or, or not, whether they should go further, whether they're going too far. It varies according to uh, judges. It varies according to the, the, the times that the judges are living in. It varies according to how the government behaves. Uh, but that judges make law, there is no doubt, and that judges should make law, again, in my view, there should be no doubt. Yes, I mean, that's certainly one source of law, isn't it? We know that Parliament makes um, acts uh, and, and obviously um, the common law is, is the system of precedent, isn't it? But um, I just wanted to, um, going back to that, part of the book, well, quite a lot of the book, I felt, having read it, is almost, and this may be, I don't know if you would agree with this, but a, a response to... Um, Lord Jonathan Sumption's ideas that actually judges have gone too far. His idea, what he says effectively, is that actually judges are encroaching on the political domain. And um, he sort of took that a little further in his Reese lectures, which are fascinating just to listen to. I listen to them in the car and, you know, all the rest of it. But it, you don't agree with that, I, I, I think, if I, I don't want to be too reductive. And it's essentially you kind of responding to that in your conclusion, at least. Absolutely. Um, I was actually very fortunate that while I was writing the book last year, Lord Sumption was delivering the 2019 BBC Reith Lectures. Although I was working for the BBC and I knew about the decision to uh, appoint him and I, I knew what he was going to say and so on, uh, nevertheless, the timing was absolutely perfect because yes. he, he wrote all his lectures and delivered them just before I completed the book, so I was able to discuss them in the book as well as going along to a couple of them. Uh, and uh, yeah, and, uh, and and listening to what the audience said as well, um, 
and uh, and asking a question, although mine was edited out, but then that's working for the BBC, isn't it? Oh, what a pity, yeah. <laughs> um, they did include on the recording some of the questions, which yeah. were, you know, really enhanced. They were. There, there was a particular yeah. question which was particularly powerful by a, a yes. woman who had been questioned about helping her husband to commit suicide. Um, and Lord Sumption seemed to suggest that it was okay to break the law, uh, something he said in, in a more recent interview with me uh, a few weeks ago, which yes. is very interesting. But um, the, the, uh, the question, though, really, of, of how far the judges should go is obviously a question for debate, and we can look at it in particular cases. And he cited a number of cases where he thought the judges had gone too far, although he didn't go into great detail. But there were two cases in particular uh, that he looked at in, in, in some detail. And on one of those, he thought that the decision of the court was perfectly straightforward, perfectly fair. So, um, and, and that was the, the unison uh, judgment, I think. That was the one um, right. about employment yeah. tribunals and fees. So I think that, uh, uh, you know, there, there is room for disagreement. And, and I, I, you know, I, 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 Lord Sumption and I disagree, but that doesn't mean that that I'm right and he's wrong. It simply means no, that no. with all these things, you can look at it from different perspectives, different and ultimately, angles. it's a matter of degree. Absolutely, and you, you talked there about your interview with Jonathan Sumption earlier this year, and I watched it, and I think, is that the um, interview that you did during lockdown, and uh, it, you interviewed Judge Anne Williams as well, and it, he was talking about um, how the lockdown is too disproportionate a use of government power on our liberty and it was the civil liberties debate and um that i think he disagreed he could argue you he realized that there was an argument that the lockdown was right to stop the nhs being overwhelmed but after that that it became a sort of there was no cost benefit analysis effectively and that it should come down to personal risk management really interesting ideas very interesting ideas and 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 these are ideas uh, which are coming before the courts again in a month's time in the last week of september the court of appeal is going to be considering a challenge to uh, the lockdown uh, laws um uh, by a man called simon dolan a businessman who is is uh, challenging them and um a, a lord sumption indicated that when he thought that they were getting ridiculous he broke them, as I'm sure a lot of people have. Um, and uh, he didn't go into any great detail. Um, no. And, and, and um, that's his privilege, and he fully accepts that he faces the consequences if anybody decides to take it further, which, of course, nobody will, which is fine. Um, but the broader principle of how far you go in these regulations is very interesting. These regulations go farther further than any other set of regulations ever before and they were subjected to less scrutiny by parliament than any other regulations we've had so it's entirely right that the courts should consider them and uh, when simon dolan uh, did uh, challenge them he didn't get very far in the high court um, and that's why he's going to the court of appeal but it's interesting isn't it that there wasn't an immediate challenge to these regulations in the way there was to the brexit uh, decision uh, people were climbing over one, uh, one another to be the first to challenge the Article 50 notice that uh, uh, Theresa May wanted to bring. And, of course, it was Gina Miller who brought the first case. And we haven't seen such a widespread challenge uh, with the, uh, the lockdown regulations. Um, no. To some extent, the government gave way. It gave way to the airlines. So, you know, it's interesting, isn't it? I did find it really interesting, actually, just to come back to it, and I'll, I'll be brief on this, but I don't want to focus too much on it, but... 
Jonathan Sumption seems to feel that the law is encroaching into areas too far into people's lives and that that's taking away our personal autonomy. And that's quite interesting because you talk in your book, Joshua, about one sad case I remember, and I've sort of forgotten it, but I, it came back to me. And it was the case of Charlie Gard, and there was a similar, similar case, Alfie Evans, little babies who basically the courts decided to that their parents could not take them for, for treatment. And my instinct, my gut instinct is that I, I, you know, it should be the parents I, I, who can decide what they want to do with their child. I mean, I, you know, so I don't know whether I agree with him in that sense. You know, if the law is encroaching too much into our personal lives, because when you compare it to the Nicklinson case, for example, of assisted suicide, the judges actually said, no, we're not going to decide whether or not assisted suicide should be lawful or unlawful. Leave that to Parliament. And yet they felt they were able to sort of make that call in relation to Charlie Gard. And... Yeah, I just, I, I feel like I, I do, you know, you tell a mother, no, you can't do that with your child. I, I, most mother's instincts or any parent's instincts would be to say, you're not telling me what you, I can do with my child, especially when it means to come to saving my child. So, yeah, I mean, I know you talk about that, and, but you think that the court had held, you know, that was right for the court to hold because it's the best interest test and that is law and it kind of goes back to that. I do, um, I do, I do, yeah, I, you know, yeah, and I, I speak yeah. as a parent and as a grandparent. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and, uh, and, um, Let's consider this idea. How far should a parent be able to go in dealing with a child? What should a parent be able to do to a child? A few years ago, um, a few decades ago, a corporal punishment, perfectly acceptable. Uh, many people would still think it's okay to hit a child. Uh, as part of chastisement, you've got to be able to you know, bring a child up properly, and if a child is naughty, you slap them. Um, I think that's going out of favour these days. You know, you you try and put them on the naughty step. You try and, you know, do something to make it clear you're cross with them. But most parents these days would not want to slap their children. Okay, so there are limits on what you can do. Uh, Should that be lawful? Yeah, probably should be. Uh, Should schools be able to do it on behalf of parents? No, I think not. Um, um, But that's that's changed. All right, now let's say um, that there is some very experimental... Um, uh, vaccine that comes along uh, for, um, uh, for for COVID-19, or maybe it's not even a vaccine, but some treatment that, that somebody seems to think is good and most people think is not. Um, should a parent be able to administer that chemical to a child um, when everybody else uh, who knows about these things says that's not in the child's best interest, that's going to harm the child rather than help the child? I think not. The, the point is that a child, however young and however unable to look after himself or herself, is an autonomous person once that child is born. And I think uh, the law is entirely right to say that the courts have to act in the best interest of the child. And if treatment is not going to help a child, if treatment is going to harm a child, if treatment is going to prolong a child's suffering, um, then the courts sadly have to say that that treatment is not in that child's best interests. And that's a very difficult thing to say, but we don't allow parents to do anything they like to their children because children are autonomous, children have rights, however young they are, and parents do not have ultimate rights to do what they like with their children. That's the law, and I think that's right. Yes, yeah. Well, it certainly, you know, provokes debate for sure. And um, uh, uh, and I, I enjoy sort of being reminded of that. But can I just come back to um, the media and the power of the media? Obviously, after that 2016 headline back in um, 
uh, in relation to Brexit. Um, you know, the media is so powerful because, you know, judges, uh, and you describe it in your book, were threatened, weren't they? I mean, some of them had to have extra security measures. I mean, litigants in person, you describe in your book, were you know, threatening judges. It's incredible, isn't it, the power that the media has in shaping, do you agree, um, the public's views on, on what's going on with courts and judges? Would you agree with that? I do, I agree. And uh, that means that the media has a great responsibility. Now, of course, these days we have social media. Um, not just Instagram, but Twitter and, and, and various other uh, media outlets. And people who use social media don't understand that they are publishers, they are publishing to the world, and they are obliged to follow the same rules that I, as a professional journalist, have to follow when writing for a newspaper or broadcasting uh, on television. Uh, and those are liable. You can't defame people unless you can no. justify what you write or say. And, and contempt of court. Depp. Uh, sorry, Johnny Depp. We'll see yeah. what the court decides. Um, and uh, and uh, we're all bound by those rules. Um, and and uh, the problem is that the, uh, the the mainstream media, as we sometimes call them, uh, sometimes tend to follow social media rather than leading uh, because they say, well, that's what people want to do. I think yes. it's a great shame that people have lost respect for the courts. There is talk in the newspapers of a Member of Parliament, either of the House of Commons or the House of Lords, naming an MP who is under investigation by the police but who's not been suspended uh, by the Conservative Party nor named in the media. I don't know whether he's been named in social media, I've not tried to find out. No. Uh, but nevertheless, it's possible that um, using parliamentary privilege, which is the privilege of peers and members of parliament, uh, uh, to say what they like uh, in parliament or in parliamentary publications, it's possible that uh, the uh, MP will be named, just as Lord Hayne named Sir Philip Green as the person who was subject to court proceedings, but who was entitled to anonymity uh, in the case that he was uh, involved in a few years ago. Now, that would be very wrong, in my view. Um, I am perfectly happy to wait until this MP is charged, and if he is charged, he'll be named and no doubt suspended, and if he's not charged, then he won't be named and he won't be suspended. I'm prepared to wait until the police decide whether there's enough evidence against him uh, before we know who he is, um, but um, if that's thwarted uh, by a parliamentarian, I think that would be a shame. I mean, on that point, you're, you're obviously talking about the, the, the Tory MP who's been arrested for sexual offences and he hasn't been named and, and that sort of comes from an extended, the law you talk about in your book obviously talks about extended privacy rights in the case of Cliff Richard when he was investigated, I think in relation to Utree, Operation Utree, and that basically decided that under police investigation you can't really name a, a suspect, so that's what we have here. I mean, do you think, I, I read an article about that and it, it the, the, the final line was, if politics is to have its me too moment, its me too moment, sunlight uh, is the best disinfectant. The sort of metaphor being that, you know, if you expose it, we get change. There's a point in that, isn't there? Because if we don't name them, we're not, you know, Westminster seems to be rife with this. I don't know. I don't want to speak out of turn. But of what I read, things aren't changing as well as they should be. Women are still being sexually harassed. If we name them, we might get some change, wouldn't we? Well, we might, but what if we name somebody who isn't the subject of uh, harassment? What if, what if we name, um, you know, uh, somebody like the the people who were accused of child abuse? I mean, 
Cliff Richard was never charged. You mentioned the Cliff Richard case, which is yes, the case that yes. established the principle. Uh, Sir Edwin Bramall, the field marshal, uh, who was named uh, wrongly. Uh, Lord Britton, Leon Britton, who was named wrongly. Um, there was a chap who was going around accusing people of sexual offences with absolute justification, and it was very damaging to uh, these people um, who, in many cases, uh, couldn't fight back, uh, died without being uh, cleared, and so on. Um, it's very important that uh, uh, genuine allegations are investigated and uh, they're brought to court if there's evidence. But it's also very important that people shouldn't be able to name people and damage people's reputations because one of the consequences of the way things are now is that people believe there's no smoke without fire. They believe that if a person makes an allegation against somebody else of a sexual assault, then that allegation must be true. Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. That's why we have courts. It's perfectly true that just because somebody is found not guilty, it doesn't mean they didn't do it. But nevertheless, uh, if they are cleared, they're entitled to uh, their presumption of innocence. And if charges are not even brought, or withdrawn at a later stage, that's a pretty good sign uh, and, uh, that the, the, the charges are uh, uh, inappropriate. And if the individual who makes the allegations, Carl Beach in this case, is prosecuted and sent to prison for making false charges, I think that's pretty clear that the false charges were indeed false. What, what about being suspended, though? Should that MP being suspended? Does failure to suspend sort of um, reaffirm the patriarchy? You know, I mean, so, some bit we're, we're having Diva Saeed on tomorrow. She's head of uh, Rights of Women Telephone Advice Line for women experiencing sexual harassment and uh, bullying. But, you know, in some workplaces, the, the, the complainant is suspended rather than the sort of alleged perpetrator. Now, I fully understand this MP has not been charged, but do you think that they should be suspended at the very least or do you think that the police investigation should just take its course and we'll, we'll see from there. I'm, I, I think the police investigation should take its course and I think if he's charged he should be suspended. Um, the yes. problem with suspending him now is it suggests that the Conservative Party, and we're talking about removing the, the whip from him, the Conservative mm -hmm. Party uh, think that these allegations are substantiated or true or may be true or could be true. Um, yes. The point is that suspending him means naming him. Uh, there's yes. no doubt about that. And the view is taken that he shouldn't be named. I share that view, even though I as a journalist agree that sunlight is the best disinfectant and I want these things to be named. Let's, let's think it through. Um, if he's uh, named when he's charged, it won't be too late for other people to come forward and say, he assaulted me too. Um, that, you know, uh, I didn't want to come forward then because I didn't know he was under investigation, but now I know he's the person under investigation. Well, here's my case. There'd be plenty of time for those allegations by other alleged victims to come forward. That was said to be the problem with Jimmy Savile, that people didn't know that he was under investigation and therefore people didn't come forward. But there'll be plenty of time uh, for others to come forward in this case if he is charged. So I, I, I don't see any problem with waiting. Um, uh, because, uh, you know, if, if he's not charged, then that's the end of it. It's, it's a delicate balance, for sure. And on, on principle, yeah, I, I, I mean, you, you, you set this out in your most, one of your blogs, I think, um, which is A Lawyer of Rights. We'll give that a little plug. Um, I've subscribed to it. And, um, yeah, and you do set out, set out those arguments. Um, 
just before we close, I just want to touch on another couple of cases that you mention um, in your book. Your book goes through different areas of law um, and sort of assesses um, how activist judges are, would that be fair? And, and one of the chapters that I just want to draw on, because a couple of cases, the case of Sally Challen and John Warboys, the black cat rapist. Now, I mean, linking to that idea of um, media exposure, do you think, I mean, I, I remember the, um, the the case of John Warboys, Nick Hardwick resigned. I mean, it, it was huge. And, you know, I even remember sort of talk of, oh, it will be the court of public opinion, you know, the high court effectively deciding on whether the parole board had acted irrationally in the decision to release Warboys. Don't you think that was a, a bit of sort of the courts responding to public pressure? I mean, do you think that the courts take account of public outcry and that, that sort of informs what they do? I think the courts are sensitive to the public, and, 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 and rightly so. Um, Nick Hardwick was actually sacked. Um, the parole board certainly failed um, uh, in that particular case. Um, and I think that the, uh, uh, the divisional court under Sir Brian Leveson crafted a very skillful decision uh, to indicate uh, how it was uh, that the parole board had failed. They hadn't taken into account uh, the fact that war boys um, was suspected of many, many other offences, even though he wasn't yes. charged with them. Yes. Um, Absolutely. And yes. this was a unique challenge by two victims um, of war boys who challenged the decision to grant him parole, which was clearly flawed, um, and it was taken by a panel which didn't have somebody who was an experienced criminal judge on it and and and, yeah. and therefore and it was it was completely wrong and uh, a new panel took the decision um and uh, and got it right and and, and then he's yes. charged and he's facing he was convicted of other charges he admitted yeah. other charges and that's it he's not coming out so the courts managed to put things right and certainly that's what the public wanted but it's what the courts wanted as well um and it was certainly doing justice uh, because the decision of the parole board that was appalling. It was inexplicable. I mean, it was, you know, they sent him to open conditions at very early stage. It was un unjustified and, and, and rightly overturned. And the case of Sally Challen, obviously Sally, uh, Miss, Mrs Challen, um, was convicted of murdering her husband, Richard Challen, and she was sentenced, just to give it a context, she was sentenced, I think, to 18 years um, back in 2011, and she was released in last year, I think, I'll be corrected if I'm wrong on that, um, 2019. But effectively, what kind of assisted her, I suppose, with her appeal, she appealed to the Court of Appeal, the Court of Appeal quashed her murder conviction because there was new psychiatric evidence, which they said was relevant to her sort of submissions, that she was subject to coercive and controlling behaviour, which had obviously become an offence in 2015. Now, again, that's a sort of societal incremental change reflecting greater awareness of, you know, domestic relationships. Not all domestic violence is physical. You know, it can be... So, So again, was that a... Do you think that decision by Lady Justice Hallett to quash the murder conviction, send her for a retrial, was a reflection of that and they kind of made the law fit a little bit? Or... Or not so much. It was a very interesting legal argument because this was this new crime of controlling and coercive behaviour being used um, not as a defence because a crime can't be used as a defence, but to inform the thinking of uh, the courts. Um, and it was a very clever move uh, by Sally Challen's lawyers. Um, um, and uh, this did indeed persuade the Court of Appeal, 
not to set her free, but to order a retrial, and in the end, um, that retrial wasn't necessary because um, she pleaded guilty to manslaughter. The real problem with that case, and so many murder cases, is that if you're convicted of murder, then you have to be sentenced to life imprisonment. Not only that, there is a strict tariff. The starting point is 15 years. And if you use a weapon, if you bring a weapon with you, and she brought a hammer in her handbag, concealed, uh, then it's higher. Uh, and therefore, however hard the court tried, in order to comply with the law, they had to set a very long minimum term uh, as part of her life sentence for murder. Um, and if the courts didn't have to uh, send all murderers to prison for life, if it was optional, as it is for manslaughter, and if they could have more discretion in deciding what sentence to pass uh, so that they can take account, uh, in Sally Challen's case, of the provocation that she suffered from her husband over many, many years, then they would have passed a sentence comparable to the sentence she actually served. I'm sure she should have gone to prison. I'm sure she should have served a sentence. I'm sure the sentence that she was uh, having to serve for murder, uh, the lengthy tariff of, uh, of, of, as part of her life sentence, was too long. So by giving the judges the discretion that they are very well able to exercise, you get justice. And by Parliament setting these rigid rules, uh, because politicians think this is going to go down well, things go wrong. So that's why um, I think that the, uh, uh, the uh, Court of Appeal was right, and, and that's why I think justice was done in the end. Yes, yes. And she was released, I think, uh, yeah, 2019, as we said. I mean, I, I just sort of wanted to touch on those because there was immense public interest in both of those cases, as we know, and also in this MP who's been arrested for sexual offences. And at the moment, as you well know, in my area, in criminal law, the criminal bar, you know, there's so many delays in cases being heard. Trials are going off to 2022, if you're lucky. And, um, you know, it seems to me that the media is a good way to try and you know, affect a, a change and the media sort of caught onto the Brexit and, you know, judgment and, 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 and all the rest of it in, in a good or bad way. I'm just wondering, what do you think it might take the media to sort of alight on some of the issues that the criminal the criminal bar, because that's all, you know, that's my area, can, can you know, is struggling with at the moment? Or do you think it's not it's seen as not newsworthy? Or why do you think it is? Because it seems to me it might be a very helpful tool in... in helping us to get some more courts, more Nightingale courts. There was a judge who um, let out somebody who was potentially dangerous because, as you know very well, there are custody limits. Um, yes. And uh, so somebody was granted bail, whereas um, in other circumstances, if there had been a speedy trial, he might not have been granted bail. And the more that happens, the more the media will, reflecting genuine public concern, report yes. that this is not working well. The issue that the uh, government seems to be toying with is scrapping jury trial, scrapping the right to choose trial by jury for what I call middle-ranking cases, cases that can be tried either by magistrates or in the Crown Court, but the defendant has the choice. And what the yes. government is thinking of doing is taking away that choice and saying that they are either tried in the magistrates' court or in some new hybrid court uh, comprising um, a Crown Court judge sitting with two magistrates, although yes. that's as far as the government's gone. My own view on that mm. is very clear. It would certainly speed things up 
but it certainly wouldn't be temporary, as the government promised us. That's what they said about income tax in the early 19th century. Um, and, um, and it, more to the point, is something which needs to be considered carefully. It's all very well senior judges uh, like the former uh, Lord Chief Justice Lord Phillips and Bertha Travers saying there are plenty of people who, given the choice, would like to be tried by judge alone. I'm sure that's right. But it has to be a proper choice. It shouldn't be a choice between you know being tried by a judge alone in six weeks' time or waiting, as you say, until 2022 for trial by jury. If no. we are going to abolish trial by jury, it's something that needs to be considered carefully. Even if we're to restrict it to the most serious cases, it needs to be considered by Parliament thoroughly and by the public. It's not something that should be introduced as an emergency on the back of a crisis, uh, a crisis which, as uh, you as a criminal lawyer know very well, is one that is not entirely down to coronavirus. There was a backlog in cases coming before the Crown Court before the virus uh, hit. And, and the reason for that was the government of the day limited the number of cases that could be heard by the Crown Court and tried by Crown Court judges. Yes, yes. Uh, no, quite right. Um, but, but, you know, there, there, there's such a huge backlog, it's certainly a, a concern. Um, Joshua, when is, um, have you got a new series of law and action? We out? have got a new series of law and action, yes, starting at the end of October and running uh, through most of November. Um, Great. I, I don't, I, well, I do know one or two things that we're proposing to talk about, but I don't think I'm going to tell you what they are now because we like to keep our stories to ourselves until we're ready to run them. Um, I was going to ask for a world exclusive, uh, but the law changes. The law changes. I'm sure there will be something on coronavirus. We um, we looked at, we disclosed, in fact, that the Scottish courts were doing something quite different from the English courts, uh, which is to have the jury in one location and the trial in another location. We interviewed the senior criminal judge in Scotland about that. So I'm sure we will be talking in the next series about how the courts are coping and how we can all do justice in a time of crisis. Absolutely, yes. Well, coronavirus seems to be sticking with us for some time to come yet. Uh, but I did read that, that in Scotland, I think they were moving some of their trials to the cinemas. And you, you did That's quite right. interesting That's right. about that. That was the yeah, story. So, the, I mean, it's a brilliant yeah. idea. You, you hire a, a multiplex for the, for the, for the week, um, it's, <laughs> and uh, you have half a dozen uh, uh, cinemas in it, half a dozen juries, because they, they're 15 in Scotland, um, and they sit around socially distanced around the cinema seats. Uh, they watch the um, trial beamed in from a courtroom on a large screen. They can be seen, of course, in court because there are cameras pointing at them. And they try the case on the evidence that they can see in front of them. And they can see it on large screens, not on flickering social media. It's brilliant. Yeah. Um, and yeah. that's what they're yeah. trying in Edinburgh yeah. and, we wait, yeah. and Glasgow. And we wait to see if anybody's going to do that in England.